This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the long room. Please refrain from touching the collection and please keep your selfie sticks at bay. Now, if you follow me, we'll head along to the Book of Kells. Oi, over here. I've escaped the tour because well, I just need more time here. It is, it's simply awe-inspiring. I'm sure you've seen the images of this part of the old library, Trinity College, Dublin. Google this, world's best libraries. You're bound to see this one pop up. It was completed in 1732 in a long room. It's a place of magnificent neoclassical symmetry. Two high stories of oak shelves reaching up to this, this, this dramatic vaulted ceiling. It's like a wooden cathedral to books. It's a fitting place for for Ireland's front room, as it's otherwise known. It's this room where many visiting dignitaries have made a pilgrimage, like the late Queen Elizabeth II, US President Joe Biden, and, well, now me. I'm here to find literary Dublin. To do that, well, I think I need to get out of this book-lined citadel and into the living city. So come on, come on. There is, there's no time to waste. Let's explore Dublin by book. Attention, passengers. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Return Ticket, the show that transports you to familiar places done differently. In this series, we'll live with no limits in Monaco, find faith in Jakarta, and we'll certainly not be sleepless in Seattle. But now... A literary date with Dublin. I've left the long room for now. It's it's a stunning place. But it feels less like a library, more like a, a museum piece. It's still extraordinarily beautiful though but to think about a city of literature which Dublin is officially (laughs) thanks UNESCO uh, literary culture was not just found beneath grand old walls you can see that around me here in in central Dublin I mean there are fancy rows of Georgian terraces there are also buildings of a similar vintage that have evolved into noodle shops and youth hostels and and brightly lit pharmacies that see unlike Paris, London or Berlin, Dublin's built environment doesn't easily give away what's happened here, particularly if you're in search of its literary traces. So that's brought me to the man I'm about to meet. His name is Christopher Marash, a a Canadian-born scholar in Irish literature who moved to the city in 1985. And he's recently written the book for my travels. It's called Dublin, A Writer's City. (laughs) Even his academic title sounds pretty spot on. He's Trinity College's inaugural Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish Writing. And he's asked me to meet him at his office here in, in Westland Row, just east of Trinity College. It's another postcard perfect Georgian Dublin street. Welcome to Dublin, Jonathan. Um, how's your flight over? Well, Christopher, thanks. I'm, I'm a bit frazzled, just a bit jet-lagged, and 
It is so crisp out there. I am, I'm kind of hoping you have a fireplace in here. Of course we do. And uh, have a bit of tea. Oh, yes, please. Just, just a splash of milk. Thank you. Okay, have a seat. Thank you. Thank you so much for showing me around today, Christopher. Um, amazing place. What, what's your first memory of, of Dublin? Well, I arrived here in actually 1985. I'm originally from Canada. And I remember, you know, arriving on the very street where we are here now, Westland Road, is, is actually where I lived. It was a graduate residence at the time. And realizing the building I was going to be staying in was a few doors down from the house in which Oscar Wilde was born. Then, a bit like yourself, feeling a bit jet-lagged, I thought, okay, I need a bit of aspirin. So I went out the front door, and at the end of the street, there's a chemist shop. And I went down, and I realized, I know Sweeney's chemist because it's in Ulysses. It's where Leopold Bloom buys lemon soap from Molly Bloom. Diagonally across the road is what was Finn's Hotel, which is where Joyce himself met Nora Barnacle, who becomes his wife, where they first went out for a date on the 16th of June, 1904, which is the day that is memorialized in Ulysses. So I had only been in Dublin for a very few minutes when suddenly I was walking in the steps of Joyce's Ulysses. And yet picking it up, knowing the traces, knowing your your instant recognition that you were in the, 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 the street in which wild was born i mean it, it presumes a certain amount of knowledge on the part of the beholder it does and and for me I, I tend to think of dublin as having two cities there's the visible physical city that you can see and that's the city that's in the eye of the beholder but you know nobody's going to mistake dublin for you know singapore or paris it's it's not a visually stunning city in lots of ways but once you come to know the stories, it's an incredibly rich city because there is this density of literary association. So the street where we are here now, Westland Row, it's a classic Dublin street. It has a pub at one end, a church in the middle, and a railway station. So I mean, you know, it could all, it could almost be an Irish village. Um, there's no building on the street. It's taller than four stories. Most of them are built of the characteristic Dublin brick. There's a kind of greyish Dublin brick that was used a lot in the late 18th to 19th centuries. And yet, as we've just seen, you know, it's, it's a street that is haunted by the ghosts of, of Joyce, of Yeats, of Beckett. The place is literarily fecund, I think it would be fair to say. It is. It is, yes. <laughs> Is there one piece of writing, Christopher, that, that just synthesises all this, that, that sits in your mind as the, the summation of all the things you've been telling me? There's a lovely poem by Louis McNeese, simply called Dublin. And he wrote it in the city just on the eve of World War II, 1939. And it captures that sense of feeling the layers of history through the writers. Fort of the Dane, garrison of the Saxon. Augustan capital of a Gaelic nation, appropriating all the alien brought. You gave me time for thought, and by a juggler's trick, you poise the toppling hour. Oh, grayness run to flower, gray stone, gray water, and brick upon gray brick. To me, that just captures the contrast between the physical city, gray brick upon gray brick, and that incredibly deep sense of the history, of so many layers of history. Wanted well, to give it its rhyme, grayness come to flower. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes, <laughs> grayness come to flower. That's it, yeah. Christopher, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure.
think it's time for a pint. Uh, so I've made my way south of Dublin's main river, the Liffey, to a delightfully charming spot called the Palace. Uh, it's in a, a riverside tourist area called Temple Bar. Yeah, it's a suburb, not a bar. But the Palace, well, it's one bar where locals still come in droves. Uh, there's Dublin Castle on one end and Trinity College on the other, so I can see why this is a, a magnet spot for tourists. And as we've learned on this trip, well, there is another place dripping in Irish history. It's rumoured that the Irish independence revolutionary Michael Collins planned some of his moves here while the bid for Ireland's first female president was launched here. And there's a framed thank you note from Mary Robinson herself to prove it. So it's, it's one of those pubs where ideas collide. And since I've been here, I've, I've met a man called Derek Scully. Uh, he's the Irish Times' Berlin correspondent, and he's, he's visiting home for a wee bit. In, in 2021, he wrote a bestseller, The Best Catholics in the World, and it charted Ireland's break with the church. He's over here. Derek, Derek, what would you like to drink? Oh, uh, I mean, the Palace Bar is famous for a line, a pint of plain is your only man, one of the many uh, tributes to a certain uh, brand of stout, which is inextricably linked with Dublin, but also inextricably linked with this bar. So it'll be a pint of plain, please. And, and it's worth waiting for, of course. Oh, it, 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 good things can't be rushed. <laughs> Can you... Tell me about the Dublin of, of your youth and, and maybe how that's changed. I always like to say I had the last of the poor Irish childhoods. I grew up, I was born in the 70s, grew up in the northern suburbs of Dublin, which started to appear very much after the Second World War. Mine was a very unadorned, pebble-dash suburb uh, of Rohini, which is on the train line along the eastern coast of Ireland heading north. At this stage, I've been away for over 20, nearly 25 years now, so I'm, I'm more curious observer than a Dubliner. I've lived longer in Berlin than I ever lived in Dublin. I'm hopeful now we're in the new phase. Ireland has grown up. It's had its flirt with money and the property markets and it still appreciates tradition but it's also willing to tap into its old European connections. Oh, here's, here's our pints too. Here you go. <laughs> Cheers. I love that expression of unadorned pebble dash. I'm conjuring a very vivid, a very vivid image of your suburb growing up. But like well, so many Irish people of your generation, you, you left. Yes, I, I think it's just, I, I was an immigrant of choice, which are, <laughs> most previous generations did not have that choice. So by 1997, when I was sort of coming of age and starting to wonder what should I do, the country was really going through an economic upswing. So I really wanted to go. Uh, and I, I really associate with, without wanting to build myself up unnecessarily, but I, when you read Joyce or you read Beckett, you just need something broader, you need something wider. Mm. And yet, of course, I found myself coming back to Ireland and realising, you know, the conversation, the chat and the social competence of being Irish is something you really only get in Ireland. <laughs> That's beautifully put too. So tell me about your book, The Best Catholics in the World, and, and what, what prompted you to, to start writing that? 
It's a book I think only an emigrant could write. You leave the country, you lose the day-to-day -day texture of life, but leaving gives you a perspective. And what I could see, this thing that defined us for so long, Catholic Church, Catholic faiths, churches, priests, nuns, it was all disappearing over the horizon at a really quick rate. And I just thought, my God, if that, that's going to be gone within five to ten years, we better document that before it goes. But on a personal level, and we had a priest in our parish who was a child abuser, and he disappeared from our parish in 1997 and we didn't know where he'd gone. Next thing he appears on the front of one of the big Dublin tabloid newspapers in court for child abuse cases going back 30 years previously. So the, the story that's so wearily familiar to listeners in Australia, in the US and in Ireland of clerical sexual abuse and the cover-up was very personal to me. I, I guess it was almost like an emigrant parting letter, love letter to his country. I'm just asking the question, well, we were all there, so what do we remember and how do we feel about that now? All right, Derek, just finally, if, to take this back to the literary, if, if there was a book that spoke to you of, of Dublin that in a way sums the place up, what, what would that book be? I think it's Dubliners because uh, it's a James Joyce work, but it's not like the this forbidding mountain of a facade like Ulysses, whereas with Dubliners, it's, you know, you literally can go with Dubliners into a pub and get a pint of plane and work your way through a chapter and have an encounter with a Dubliner from 100 years ago. And you might be hearing very similar conversations going on in the snug next to you or on the, on the stool next to you. So I find Dubliners, it's very much a love letter from somebody who loved the city so much that he had to leave. And that's something I very much can associate with. Derek, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been drawn to, to Phoenix Park. It's a former hunting park sitting inland on, on the western edge of the city. It's a place that has seen significant Irish history. It's home to the Irish president's official residence, formerly the seat of the British Viceroy of Ireland. It's also home to the Papal Cross, a large steel crucifix commemorating the 1979 mass that Pope John Paul II gave. In this park, some 1.25 million people, a third of the Irish population, came to hear him. But my, how things have changed. In a bit, we'll meet Susan Tomaselli, who's, who's asked to meet me here to see the, well, the Dublin that the tourists often don't get to see. She's editor of a, of a Dublin literary journal called Gorse. I picked up a copy before I came over and... Mmm, yes, <laughs> there's nothing quite like the smell of a fresh print product. Oh, <laughs> hello, Susan. Hi, Jonathan, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm just, I should tell you, I'm, I'm a reformed literary journal editor myself. What a terrible thing to be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for meeting me here in Phoenix Park. What, a, what an extraordinary, what a huge place. Why did you want to meet here? You're right, it is huge, but maybe not on an Australian scale. But it's one of the largest public parks in Europe. I, mean, I think it's something like 1,700 acres. It touches on the different visions and the different versions of Dublin. And on the other side of the park, you have the more lugubrious neighbourhoods of, say, Chapel Izzard and Castle Knock. So when access isn't always there, or opportunities for that matter, the park is. So it's touching the class differences in the city in a very tenable way. 
do we acknowledge those class differences in, in literature? Is that a thing in the words of, of, of Dublin? Yeah, I think it is. There's not uh, just one story of Dublin and it's signified and pointed to. It's there in our postal codes and in our accents. There's a, a book by the writer Frankie Gaffney called Dublin 7 and he writes in a very Dublin vernacular. And he would say that that Hiberno English goes all the way back to Shakespeare's street language. And of course, you've um, Roddy Doyle's The Commitments that was huge in the 90s and a representation of how Dublin used to be in the 1980s. But working class writing has always been there through writers like Sean O'Casey and Brenton Bain. But the shifting paradigms, I suppose, controlling what gets published and deciding what people get to read is changing. A city with a, with a thriving culture of, of literary journals is, is a special place. I think the journals reflect Dublin's polyphonic literary tradition and amplify that. Neither are places for working class writers to be published, places for female voices to be heard. Just like a radioactive spider explains the superhero, nearly every new Irish writer of recent times has an origin story. They started out somewhere. And that could be Gorse, or it could be the Dublin Review, Sting Fly Banshee Journal. Journals allow writers to find that first place to be published and also to take risks with what they want to say and how they want to say it. Susan, there's a great richness here, and thank you. Thank you for this little tour and for for pointing out so much of, of that, that rich, rich, rich character and tapestry in Dublin. Thank you. Okay, so the cat's out of the bag. Uh, the romantic literary associations of Dublin don't quite reflect the city of today. Today, well, Dublin is an incredibly expensive city. Average rental prices in Ireland today are higher than average mortgage repayments. And this year, the Irish government's decided to end a moratorium on rental evictions. And that's prompted the novelist Sally Rooney to note, and I quote... The nice thing about being a landlord in Ireland today, as the late Margaret Thatcher might observe, is that you never seem to run out of other people's money. Now, those words appeared in Rooney's op-ed about the housing crisis in the Irish Times. So, when you put all of this together, history's repeating. Like a previous generation, this this cashed-up, unequal Dublin is prompting many to leave. So... What makes others hang on? To answer that, I'm going to meet Brendan Barrington, the editor of the Dublin Review of Books. He migrated to Dublin from New York in 1995, and in that time, he's seen Ireland boom and bust. He works in a 20th century terrace to the north of Merrion Square. It's a London-style green that's lined by Georgian terraces. Ah, Brendan, uh, thanks for thanks for letting me pop into your office. Uh, in my conversations around this place, I, I get the sense that, that Dublin well, holds a great literary presence. Is that still true of the, the city today? I would say, for a combination of reasons, it's much less coherent a literary city than it used to be. And one of the big reasons for that, I think, is economic. For most of Ireland's century of independence... 
Dublin was a, a pretty poor city. And then at some point it became a city that was still quite poor, but also oddly expensive. And then it became a city that was in many ways quite rich uh, or in pockets very rich, whose destiny was determined by money. And at the same time, it became a city that was less friendly to creative people of all kinds, and writers included. I imagine that the Dublin and the phase that you that you mentioned before of being a poor city that that was also a city of opportunity for for writers for for, for literary culture. In some ways, it was yes, but it's also important to remember that the great Dublin writers, for the most part got out of Dublin. And Ulysses was written from abroad. Joyce did not live in Dublin for any part of the writing of, of Ulysses. So it's this, it's this extraordinary act of love and, and reconstruction of, of a city at a particular moment, a, a crucial moment in Joyce's own life. But at the same time, he left it with minimal hesitation. Beckett left Dublin wild left Dublin. Generations of, of Irish people have had to leave Dublin and, and other parts of Ireland for economic reasons and also, you know, frankly, for cultural reasons. So Dublin is a funny sort of literary city because it's the subject of one of the most celebrated novels ever written. But if you actually think about working writers in Dublin over the decades or over the centuries, it's actually not being an especially vibrant centre, I, I would suggest. And yet, it has been, for me, a great home for the Dublin Review, and it's no accident that I used the name Dublin when naming the journal, because anyone who reads has an idea of Dublin as, as a city of, of literary possibility. Is there a book that, that speaks to the Dublin that you've been describing, uh, the, the contemporary Dublin? What, what might that book be? You know, Anne Unright is a good example of a brilliant Irish writer of the 21st century, you know, whose career arc and whose way of life would probably be unrecognisable to someone like Joyce. But I don't think at any point in the future her novels will be fetishised for their evocations of the suburbs of Dublin. And I think that's realistically, when you're looking at the literature of Dublin for the past 20 years, the good books are books in which Dublin probably doesn't jump up and down and wave its arms too much as, as a character in itself. But despite all that, Brendan, Dublin, it's a word that still conjures literary possibility, does it not? It, it absolutely does. And I suppose all of us who work in and around Dublin in, in literary things, you know, are, are trying all the time to make the reality match that aura and that real or imagined heritage. Brendan, thank you so very much. My pleasure. Okay, so I've, I've just popped out uh, to the Merrion Square Park to gather my thoughts. And of course, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of literary history hereabouts, if you, if you pay attention. Sometimes it's obvious. There's an Oscar Wilde memorial in the corner of this park. And of course, one of the terraces bordering it is the place where Joyce waited his first date with his eventual wife, Nora Barnacle. And in central Dublin, well, you can't seem to escape literary ghosts. As Christopher Marash mentioned, in fact... 
This park is only a few minutes' walk from his office, so I've come full circle. And perhaps it's circularity that defines Dublin's literary heritage. Even when you try to leave this place, Dublin will seep its way back into your writing. And when you're here, as much as you try to escape the shadows of Joyce, of Beckett, of Wilde or Rooney, well, you can't. Even if the Dublin of today has moved out of the romantic shadow cast by the likes of Joyce. It's like what the Irish writer Elizabeth Bowen once said of, of Dublin. Emotional memory here has so much power that the past and present seem to be lived simultaneously. Attention passengers. been listening to Return Tickets. You heard from Christopher Marash, Derek Scally, Susan Tomaselli and Brendan Barrington. And special thanks to Aoife O'Flynn. Producers are Alan Whedon and Rachel Bongiorno. Technical production and musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. Do tell your friends if you like the show. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Green. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now die-hard music fans at the tender age of 52 <laughs> and a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online restricting and banning just hasn't worked come follow earshot on the abc listen app what path can i follow to not feel this anymore